that if we would follow, if we would dedicate our lives to you, if we would truly make you the master of our lives, as the only gate, the only way, the only truth and the only life, that we could be together with you for all eternity. So Jesus, we thank you. And Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would be present in our hearts, you would be present in our midst, in this time we spend together this morning, that it would just be glorifying to you as God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our series called Equipped in the Gospel of Matthew. And the title of today's sermon is Equipped for Persecution. Equipped for Persecution. It wasn't that long ago that I did a sermon on the Beatitudes, the very same section that we're going to cover this morning, and it might seem redundant, except we were doing that as part of our Iconic series. We just kind of pulled that one section out, some iconic passages of Scripture. And this morning we're looking at it as a part of a unit, a part of a whole of Matthew's Gospel, equipped for persecution. Not too long ago, I was watching a, a show on TV, and one of the episodes had to do with this man who was lost in the desert. And how he got lost in the desert was is that a friend of his came to him and he said, hey, what do you think of this idea that we do this ultra-endurance race, this marathon through the Sahara Desert, where right then I would have been done. But he said to his friend, what if we do this ultra-marathon, the Marathon des Sables? And you begin in the Sahara Desert and you end in the Sahara Desert and it's six days long and you do several miles each day. It's 150 to 156 miles depending on the terrain and where they draw the course up each year. It's literally through sand dunes, through the Sahara Desert. And his friend said, absolutely, I'm in. Let's do this thing. Well, the friend that invited wasn't the one who got lost the one who actually accepted the invitation, several days into the race, there was a horrible windstorm that was terrible. And they couldn't see the hand in front of their face. They got separated, and this man got lost. And he continued walking and walking and walking, and he thought for sure at some point he would catch up with some other people who were doing the race, and he didn't. And eventually he found himself dehydrated, starving, and at one point he found a, a tiny little type of a monastery, a tiny little building in the middle of the desert, and he went inside of there and he thought, I'm going to end my life, because it had been several days with no food and no water, and he actually took a knife and he slit his wrist because he just wanted to die, and he said in the, in the TV show, he said, human beings aren't afraid of death, what we're afraid of is pain, and he said, I was afraid of the pain of death. And he slit his wrists, and he passed out, and then he woke up several hours later. He was so dehydrated that he couldn't even bleed out. Couldn't even bleed out. And the reason why I mention that story is eventually this man, he ran into a, a Bedouin girl, a, a shepherdess, 
And she saw him, and because his eyes were sunken in his head and he looked like a living zombie, a skeleton, she freaked out and she ran. And they were on the border of a, another country. And so the army men, these two soldiers, came down and they took him under arrest and they put a bag over his head and he thought at that point that he was going to be executed. And it turned out they took him to a hospital. He was from Italy. They contacted the embassy and they arranged for him to make it home. And what this man did after that was after he was nursed back to health, he decided that he was going to go back every year and he was going to redo that race every year. So he's done it multiple times. And his wife said, you know what? I can't be married to you anymore. Because you only think about yourself. See, all of your marathon training, everything that you're doing, is you don't take care of our kids, you don't invest in our marriage, the only thing that you do, the only thing that you care about is your race out in the desert. And I bring that up because in the Sermon on the Mount, at the very beginning, what Jesus does is like this guy's friend, is he sets the expectation. If his friend had come to him and said, hey, bud, I want you to do this thing with me, and bud said, okay, what is it? And he said, we're going to go and we're going to sit down on the side of the road and we're going to watch a parade. And it turns out what they're really doing is an ultra marathon race in the desert. I'm thinking that Bud would probably be a little bit upset. I wasn't ready. I had no idea. I hadn't done any training. I didn't have enough water. I didn't have any of the equipment necessary. But what Jesus does at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount is he sets our expectations. I'm going to read the very beginning of it here. Chapter 5, verse 1, beginning there. When he, that's Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. After he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And I wonder if we just missed something. I wonder if we just missed something because we're so excited about getting into the Sermon on the Mount that we miss the fact that it says, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, did you ask yourself when I read that, where did the crowd come from? Where did the crowd come from? See, when you read the Bible and you're studying it, if you're not asking yourself those kinds of questions, you're going to miss the context. Do you remember last week what we talked about? We talked about Jesus calling his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he said, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And it says immediately they left their nets and followed him. James and John says immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. And in verse 23, it says, Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease, every sickness of the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. Y'all realize that's 300 miles away from where Jesus was? 300 miles! We live in a day of internet and cell phones. Have you done anything in your life that people are talking about what you've done 15 miles from here. Do people in poetry talk about what's going on at Poetry Baptist Church? I wonder. I wonder. Or is our church not doing anything of really any value for the outside community, and so the news about us isn't really spreading anywhere? 
certainly not going to make it 300 miles from here. And it says that, So they brought him all of those who were afflicted, those who were suffering from various diseases, intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he, Jesus, healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan, all the way out to Syria. 300 miles! When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It doesn't say that Jesus was talking to the crowd. Did you catch that? It doesn't say that Jesus was preaching to the crowd. See, the crowd's there, all of these people, they're not his disciples. These are people who have been healed, family members who have been healed. They're here for the miracles of Jesus. Remember last week what we talked about? Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and he says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I don't know how many of you men went fishing with your dad, but when I was a little boy, I had an uncle that actually he was a professional fisherman up in Boston, Massachusetts, in the Cape Cod area. That's what he did. And we went fishing a few times with Uncle Dickie. And when we went fishing with Uncle Dickie, he would show us stuff. And that's what Jesus is doing right here. He just got done calling these men, and he said, you know, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how to fish, bud. Hey, Robert, I'm going to show you how to fish. Andrew, Josh, Jack... Vincent, Poppy, if you come and you drop everything and you follow me, I'm going to show you how to fish. And the very first thing that he did, going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Why did Jesus teach in the synagogue? Because there's a need there. You've got these people who are Jewish zealots, religious folks, and they think that their descendancy, their genealogy, their attachment to Abraham, that that's their ticket to heaven. And so Jesus goes because that's where there's a need. And he's preaching the good news of the kingdom, and he's healing all these diseases. Why is he healing diseases? Because he wants people to be impressed? Because there's a need. And so the first thing I want to mention is that when we're casting the net of the gospel, are we addressing anyone's Immediate and legitimate need. I wonder. When I wasn't a Christian, if someone had walked up to me and said, let me tell you about Jesus, I wouldn't have had any interest whatsoever. But when my business was failing, and someone would walk up to me and say, Kevin, you know what? I don't want to see you struggle, and so I want to help you out. I want to help address a need. I don't necessarily have any money, but I can speak into your business and I can maybe look at your books and the way that you're doing things and maybe I can point some stuff out. And you know what? I would have been receptive. I would have been 100% receptive. How many people do you know in your life who are in desperate need? Many of us in church, we say, we don't know anybody. And sometimes we even wear that as a badge of honor. You know what, Tanya? I don't know a single non-believer. Aren't you impressed with me? And you should say, absolutely not. 
are you sharing the gospel with? Well, I don't really talk to the people at work because they know I'm a Christian and, you know, every time I hit them over the head with a Bible, they say, man, I don't want to hear that stuff anymore. Well, maybe we should stop hitting them over the head with a Bible. Maybe we should ask them how their wife's doing. Hey, Robert, how's your daughter doing? How are your kids doing in school? Vincent, how's your sister? Vincent, how are you after that car accident that you were in? Do we really take the time to be fishers of men? I wonder. See, Jesus started off and he showed them how it is that we're going to do this thing. How are we going to be fishers of men? And he cast the net. And he said, if you address people's immediate needs, then you start gaining relational equity for the long term. The reason why these people were willing to sit at the foot of the mountain and wait was because Jesus helped them. Jesus tells these disciples, blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. He modeled it. He taught it. He preached it. He healed. I just wonder, do we do that? Blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Who are you investing in who's poor in spirit? See, because that's everyone. If they don't know Jesus, they're poor in spirit. They're destitute. Blessed are those who mourn. I wonder if Jesus wasn't in the Sermon on the Mount, at the very beginning in the Beatitudes, if Jesus wasn't pointing out the characteristics of a true disciple. Are you poor in spirit? Are you poor in spirit? Have you acknowledged the fact that you need Jesus? See, because if you don't start there where Jesus started, none of the rest of this is going to make any sense. You're going to be like the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and you're going to be full of self-righteousness. Pastor, I've never had a drop of alcohol in my life. So what? What does that do to reach a single person who's lost? I'm not saying go home and get drunk, but what are the badges of honor that we wear? Pastor, I haven't said a curse word in 50 years. So what? I really don't think Jesus cares. He wants to know, are you casting the net? Are you addressing people's needs? And we say, well, I go to church. I read my Bible. I had my quiet time this morning. Who'd you pray for besides yourself? I wonder. Blessed are those who mourn, verse 4, because they will be comforted. Now remember, Jesus is talking to these men that he's called. It doesn't say anything after calling Peter and Andrew, James and John. It doesn't say anything else. So at this point in Matthew's gospel, we don't know that there's another disciple present. All we know from Matthew's gospel is that there's these four men and there's a large crowd and he's teaching them how to fish. Are you poor in spirit? Because if you are, the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, because they will be comforted. When's the last time that you mourned for someone who was lost? 
When's the last time you truly, and I think it's really easy for us to say, well, pastor's not really talking to me. I'm talking to you. When's the last time you actually shed a tear for someone who didn't know Christ? Blessed are the gentle, because they will inherit the earth. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He starts off and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is, is, not will be. We're not talking about the future. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then the rest of the things that follow up until the bookend says, will be. Are you prepared to mourn as a disciple of Jesus Christ? He says, you will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, because they will inherit the earth. Future. What does it mean to be gentle? Well, every single one of these things, I think if you think about the characteristics of Jesus, it instructs us. Jesus, the eternal son, had access to the power of the Holy Spirit, the eternal Logos who spoke creation into existence. That's pretty powerful. The one who could tell the waves and the wind, shh, and it stopped. The one who could turn water into wine. The one through whom the power of the parting of the Red Sea happened. Every miracle that Jesus ever did. Cast out demons simply at his name. Blessed are the gentle or the meek. See, Jesus, at any point, he could have said, enough, enough. And he could have eradicated all of the opposition. He could have wiped out all sin, everything on earth, a greater judgment than the flood, and he would have been right in doing so, but he didn't. That's what it means to be meek. I think oftentimes we think about Jesus, we see the, the medieval or the Renaissance art of Jesus, and he's this pasty white guy, and he looks effeminate like he's floating across the, the ground. I really don't think that's Jesus. I think Jesus would probably look like someone that Robert works with. It would be somebody that's got calloused hands, that's been out in the sun. He was an Israelite. He had dark hair and brown skin. He was the son of a carpenter. He knew what manual labor was. He was scourged for hours. And then he took a cross up to Calvary. And then they stuck him up there with nails in his wrists. And it took several hours for him to die. Many of us, if we even had the thought of that, we would faint and fall on the ground. Jesus. He was meek. He wasn't a doormat. And he says that that's what his disciples will be like. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Does that describe you? I'm not talking about social justice per se. I'm talking about hunger and thirst for righteousness. In a moment, we're going to look at a passage at the end of this. And Jesus is righteousness personified. Righteousness is Jesus. Jesus is righteousness. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Because you'll be filled. Blessed are the merciful because they will be shown mercy. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but I'll ask you to turn in your Bible for a moment to Matthew 
chapter 18. And there's a story, a parable that Jesus tells about an unforgiving slave or an unmerciful servant. Then Peter came to him, starts in verse 21 of, verse, of chapter 18. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times could my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus responds, I tell you, not as many as seven times, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents, that's so much money you'd never be able to pay it back, was brought before him. Since he had no way of paying it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the slave, the servant, fell face down before him and said, be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Something that there's no way he could do. Then the master of the slave had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. But that slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a 100 denarii. He grabbed him, it's pocket change, that his friend owed him, pocket change. And he grabbed him, the one who had just been forgiven this huge debt, and he grabbed this man, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, the fellow slave fell down and began begging him, the same thing he did. Be patient with me, and I'll pay you back. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply distressed, went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then, after he had summoned him, his master said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? The answer is yes. His master got angry, handed him over to the jailers until he could pay everything that was owed. So my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Let's go back to Matthew chapter five. Blessed are the merciful because you will be shown mercy. Are you merciful? You ever ask yourself that question, are you truly merciful? Do you demonstrate an attitude and a spirit of mercy towards other people, especially those who don't know Christ? And I wonder, as a disciple, someone who's learning how to fish, learning how to cast that net, learning how to bring others into the kingdom, are you merciful? Blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. That's not self-righteousness. That's pure in heart because God has given you a new heart. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called sons of God. Do you know anybody who's a peacemaker? Oftentimes I think we mistake the idea of the biblical sense with the people who just want everything to be calm. They just want to patch things up, smooth things over. That's not what Jesus did, right? And that's not what he's called his disciples to do. He doesn't want us just to go, hey, everybody, let's just get along. Let's just coexist, right? Right, Vincent? Let's just coexist, 
Robert, I know, I know that your theology is a little bit different from mine, and you know what? Let's just, let's just flush all that theology stuff down the toilet. You know, somebody believes in Buddha, somebody else believes in Confucius, somebody else believes in this stuff, Islam, whatever. Hey, Mormon, Jehovah Witness, can't we all just get along? That's, I'm being a peacemaker, right? No. See, Jesus came down from heaven to make sure that we wouldn't spend eternity in fire being misled. And as someone who's a disciple of Christ, if you're not rocking the boat a little bit, See, you're trying to make peace with people who don't know God and God. We're not trying to smooth things over and coexist. And then in verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. I just wonder, kind of did the children's sermon this morning, and I started off and I showed them a picture saying, blessed are the poor in spirit because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And I showed them a picture of Disney, that castle. Everyone's familiar with it. And I wonder if we're not kind of like little kids and thinking, you know, I, I, want, I want in on the kingdom. I want in on the kingdom. I want to go to Disney. I'm ready for Disney. But then when Jesus comes to the end, setting the expectation for the people he's called who are going to be fishers of men. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Is that where we check out? Is that where we check out, folks? Thank you. Got like a six-year-old back there. This No! Everybody else says, yes! I'm going to check out at the persecution point. If it's uncomfortable, if it's not sanitary and sterile, if it means I actually have to talk to someone, back up just a little bit. Jesus is teaching and preaching and healing. Do y'all realize what Jesus did in that? He actually had to talk to people. <gasps> As Christians, who have you talked to? Who have you talked to? We say, well, nobody really wants to, every, you know, it's the gospel and the Bible and it's in every hotel and, you know, it's like, if people really wanted, who have you talked to? When Jesus called you, just like these disciples, he said, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And we dropped everything to come after him. Who have we talked to? Who have we cast our net upon? Whose needs have we addressed? When's the last time you addressed anyone's need? Do you even know what their needs are? And then we get to the point there at the end, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. And I showed that picture of the ki to the kids of the hands on the bars in the jail. Do you want to be persecuted? No! And I wonder if that's us. That Jesus has called us and we say, Jesus, we want in on Disney. We want to go to the Magic Kingdom, but we really don't want to be persecuted. As I was preparing the sermon for today, and I was looking up images online for the persecuted church, and there's a lot of them out there, and there's some where it shows um, Christians in Ethiopia walking along a beach, and they're in these orange jumpsuits. And each man from Ethiopia who's a Christian is being, the person that's standing behind them is one of these uh, ISIS fighters dressed all in black with the ski mask. You can't see their face. 
and they're standing behind them and they've all got their assault weapons. And at some point they stopped and they had all of these men kneeling down on the beach and they slaughtered them. I think this was in 2013. And several other images. You can go to Open Doors. It's a website that'll show you all the things that are happening to the persecuted church. Early on as a Christian, I remember sitting in a singles group and they were praying for the persecuted church and I asked the singles pastor, what does that mean when we say we're praying for the persecuted church? Well, that they would stop being persecuted. I thought that was curious because I really don't see that in the Bible. See, what I think what happens is that when persecution stops is that Christians become terribly complacent. And then we think church is about, well, is, is your music style, pastor, is your music style, is it contemporary or is it hymns? Do you guys have more of the rock and roll worship or do you guys have more of the old school stuff? See, because I want to go to a church that I like. I don't want to necessarily go to one where God has called me to serve. See, because then it would be really uncomfortable. I want to, I want to be able to go down my checklist just like, you know, single people on Match.com. You know, he's got to be six foot five. He's got to be tall, dark, and handsome. You know, he's got to have a job and an income over, you know, six figures. Got to have all that stuff. And we do the same thing with our churches. And when we stop liking it, we just pick up shop and we go somewhere else. In verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. At the very onset of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets the expectation. Are you ready to be persecuted? Are you ready to be persecuted? Hey, church, are you ready to be persecuted? Yes. Be careful how you answer that. See, because the group mentality, I'm just going to say yes because that's what the pastor wants to hear. You're not responding to me. You're responding to him. If he's called you and you're calling him your Lord and Savior and you don't necessarily just want the Disney, the Magic Kingdom... You want to be part of the mission and the purpose of God here on earth right now today. Hey, church, are you ready to be persecuted? Yes. Make that your prayer. Wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, Lord, I'll do it. And you know what? He'll answer that for you. He may lead you to Poetry Baptist Church. He did me. He may lead you to a place where there's a bunch of grumpy, angry, spiteful people. It may be in Africa. It may be in Washington State. It may be in Mexico. It could be anywhere. And you say, God, I'm ready to go. But somehow, I think, many of us, we just want the magic kingdom. We just want Disney. And I pray that's not true of our church. Blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you. Did y'all notice that in verse 11, Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you if they insult you, if they persecute you? If you're walking with Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. 
I only have one slide for today, and that's it. Followers of Jesus are equipped for persecution through our relationship with him. Faith translates into action. At the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sets the expectation. He lets us know that there's some really good things that are going to happen. But he also lets us know that in the here and now, that if you're walking with him, we're going to be persecuted. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Son. Thank you that you've given us our Bibles, Holy Scripture, that we can open it up and that we can build a relationship with you. That we don't just have to wonder and question, that you don't play games with us, that you tell us in no uncertain terms that if we're going to be disciples, not cultural Christians, not Sunday show up when it's convenient Christians, but if we're going to be true disciples, if we're going to follow you, if we're going to give up everything in the here and now, come what may, throw us into the wood chipper, into the meat grinder, whatever it is that it takes to advance your mission for your glory, we're in. God, that's my prayer for Poetry Baptist Church that we would be a tiny little church filled with people passionate, prepared to be persecuted for your glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen.